Welcome to Anthropod. I'm Catherine Sacco, and on this episode, we bring you highlights from a panel at the 2017 American Anthropological Association meeting titled Ex Post Facto, The Anthropology of Media and Journalism in a Post-Truth Era. The panel discussion touched on what it means to be living in a post-truth era, how the anthropology of media might guide us towards understandings of approximate or partial truth, and how to lead discussions about truth claims in the media in our classrooms. It felt appropriate, given the topic of the panel, that the AAA meeting was in Washington, D.C. this year, but the panelists also brought global perspectives to the discussion. Robert Samet, Naomi Schiller, Natalia Rudakova, Alexandra Yuhaz, Amal Bashara, and Faye Ginsberg participated in the panel discussion. We begin with Naomi Schiller's presentation. So on the heels of the Trump inauguration last February 2017, I opened my visual anthropology class um, with a slide of two images. On the left, there was one from a Reuters photographer, the mall, which I'm sure people have seen, um, the, the Trump inauguration. And on the right was the, the Reuters photo of, of the Obama administration with much larger crowds from 2009. So I was hoping to use the, those images to begin the semester-long conversation about um, the production of media, how people make truth claims, how we circulate these claims. The news cycle had been completely dominated in the week prior about the conversation, Trump and then Secretary, Press Secretary, remember him, Sean Spicer, talking about Trump's crowds um, and how they were so big and the biggest ever. Um, so, um, and so, much to my surprise, I teach at Brooklyn College, a student raised their hand and said, well, everybody knows that Reuters lies and doctors their photos. And that student, who ended up to be incredibly intelligent and continued to write papers throughout the course of the semester using all the sources that I had assigned, including Fagensburg and uh, Bill Nichols, um, Saul Worth, um, to argue about a very relativist notion about truth and how, um, you know, because of your perspective on the world, Everybody has their own truth, and there's no collective truth that we can come to. So um, this threw me into a bit of a uh, crisis about teaching uh, visual and media anthropology. So um, I was working with Robert on a piece. We both work on media producers in Venezuela, and we were working on a piece together. Um, so we talked about, let's make a AAA panel about this and bring people together um, so that we can get some help to figure out how to uh, maneuver and think about truth in the, in the post-truth Trump, Trump age, right? So just very bluntly and broadly, um, I don't think we should go back to asserting a kind of absolute truth in pure objectivity, um, or trust, absolute trust in pure objectivity. I don't think that's the answer. Instead, I think we need to advance the idea of an approximate truth and teach about the idea of an approximate truth. This doesn't mean that there's no truth or that empirical truths or facts aren't discoverable, but there's a messy process of deliberation in which we put together our situated knowledge to analyze evidence and come to the best, closest truth we can establish at the time and place in which we find ourselves. 
So I've been trying to teach my students about this idea about approximate truth. Um, I think we need to focus on teaching engaged ethnographies of the process of media production, like the kind that Natalia, Amal, Faye, and Robert and I are working on getting out there. <laughs> um, students really need to think through media in action. So I use examples from the very contentious media world of Venezuela in the Chavez era, where I did my research to, to get students to reckon with taken for granted assumptions about press freedom. Um, but I think I'm really trying to pull out for them the messy process of deliberation, the uncertainty, the politics at stake, the political economy um, in the process of producing representations. And lastly, I think we need to engage our students in very hands-on work to make their own media representations. And this can happen in very low-tech ways. So I've experimented with having my students produce photo essays about one another. So I pair students up and I have them interview one another about their experience as Brooklyn College students and ask them to document the other student's life in 10 images and to pair those images with quotes from the interview um, and then write a paper drawing on the resources from the class that analyzes what was the process for you in trying to produce an authentic as much as possible, a truthful as much as possible representation of the student. So it doesn't always work. But sometimes it works, and <laughs> sometimes I think they, I have seen some sort of aha moments where they do get how you can establish an approximate truth about your subject that mm. even while they're aware of their own positionality, that, um, you know, you know, and I was taught this by Faye Ginsburg um, early on about thinking about Nanook of the North, and I try to do that, you know, how do we think about that film as completely um, fabricated, and yet still there, there are some truths in there that we can think about, right? So, um, so, but having them have to go through the process themselves, I think, is an important part of, uh, part of learning. Robert Samet presented next continuing Naomi's engagement with both research and pedagogical concerns. So like Naomi and probably many of you, I find myself on unstable terrain these days. Um, I want to begin with a, an anecdote, um, a, a problem that I encountered in one of my classes, similar to what Naomi encountered, and then I want to link it to a larger shift that we've been observing. Uh, this past spring, when I was teaching my anthropology of media, class at a small, privileged, mostly white liberal arts college in upstate New York. I, I redesigned the class. It was, I decided, you know, this is a great time to, to focus on journalism and the question of facts. It was a semester-long investigation on the very issues that this panel was addressing, is addressing. Um, and I, I put an a added component to it. In addition to all the readings, I, I decided, you know, it would be really good to actually force these students to do journalism rather than merely critique it. So I, I designed the entire class. Um, I was only teaching one class that, that term. Um, so, so I designed the entire class as a newsroom. Um, and I, I created three different news desks and tried to, tried to put the, the students through the rigors and the problems of, of coming up with sources and actually coming recognizing what a good fact is and what a good narrative is and, and what isn't a good narrative. I'll, I'll come back to that. but. The, the surprise for me came actually out of the text and some of the textual engagements. Uh, of, out of all the texts that I had to choose from when I'm, I'm designing this course, th there were lots of good ones, um, many of them by people in this room, and many of them were used. Uh, many of the stuff by people in this room were, were used, but one I was determined to teach was Mark Peddleti's War Stories, uh, The Culture of Foreign Correspondence. 
For anyone who might not know the book, it's an ethnography of, of journalists in El Salvador in the late 1980s and early 1990s as the Civil War is coming <clears throat> to a close. Penalty shows how these journalists were disciplined to tell certain stories and to silence others in the name of objectivity or to, to gloss that over in the, with, with objectivity. Everyone in El Salvador and much of the rest of the world knew that the U.S. played a major role in the conflict and the series of brutal and ongoing massacres in that country. It's one of the darkest chapters, along with Guatemala, um, in U.S. history. Um, yet news of that never reached North American audiences. Going inside the war world of war correspondence, penalty throws into question journalistic protestations of objectivity and shows how the press was actively complicit in hiding the facts on the ground. The ideology of objectivity served to impede, to slow, and otherwise stymie the construction of a narrative that painted El Salvadoran rebels in a sympathetic light. And I want to emphasize the way in which objectivity, this, this, this objectivity fetish, um, and the difficulty of finding supportive evidence performed that kind of slowing down, the slowing down of reason. I want to uh, maybe twist Isabel Stanger's use of the slowing down of reason to maybe a different purpose here way that facts can do that. The person who was most inspired by the book in that class is someone that I'll refer to as John Doe, especially since we're, we're recording. John Doe was my white working class football player. I've had John Doe in courses before, and I've found him be, to be a thoughtful student, smart student. That said, we don't share politics. John Doe is not a leftist. He's not even a liberal. When we got to Natalia's book on losing Pravda, he was vociferous in his denunciation of Russia and of communism. He made it known every day. He's not a communist. I'm not sure who John Doe voted for. He made it clear it wasn't Hillary Clinton, and it will never be Bernie Sanders. John Doe found Mark Peddleton's war stories to be absolutely inspirational. It was proof positive to him of the failures of mainstream media and of a media conspiracy. He showed that this, he, he saw that he saw the, 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 the vindication of his belief that media was corrupt, that it refused to publish truth. That, that was not what I was anticipating when I designed the book. <laughs> I had not thought that a young man whose politics lean right would take up something that was written with an implicitly, if not explicitly, leftist position to support his own worldview. And I think that speaks to a shift in the political terrain that I, for one, am still learning to, to navigate. And I think for me, and I don't really, I don't come to this with answers. I do come to this with more questions. I, I'm really trying to think about how how I go about reaching those John Doe's, um, and who who is not unincorrigible. I hope. So let me let me jump um, to my own research in Venezuela, which Naomi has heard too much about. Um, my own research in Venezuela was 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 alongside crime journalists, and I when I went to Venezuela, I was far less interested in crime than in journalistic ideals of the people reporting it. What was fascinating for me in Venezuela was that nearly every one of the interlocutors that I interviewed, every one of the interviews that I had, every one of these interviewers, with one exception, rejected the concept of journalistic objectivity as a myth. In fact, one of my favorite interviewees referred to it as magical objectivity, intimating that it was the North American equivalent of magical realism. <laughs> Instead of objectivity, what I found in Venezuela were these different discourses about truth and truthfulness, in some ways similar to what we're talking about here. This was from both the left and the right. 
For these journalists, truthfulness meant recognizing that facts are situated within a socio-political context and that journalism as such is an explicitly political endeavor. And, and how do you go about navigating that was what, what all these conversations were about. How do you do that honestly? How do you do that tactically, et cetera? <clears throat> What struck me at the time was the stark difference in the ideals that oriented journalistic labor in Venezuela and the United States. And I found a pithy way to summarize it. And here I'm going to quote from a, a recently pu published article. This is what I wrote, quote, a brief illustration must suffice in place of further elaboration on object objectivity in square, scare quotes and truthfulness in scare quotes as two regimes of truth. In the Anglo-American tradition, news outlets are frequently accused of bias, but they're almost never accused of lying. Indeed, labeling someone a liar is almost unthinkable in Anglo-American journalism. In Venezuela, in contrast, the charge of bias is superfluous and almost never made because it's assumed almost from the start. Of course, news is biased. However, it's quite common to call a news outlet, a journalist, or a politician a liar because the measuring stick for journalistic integrity is truthfulness rather than objective distance. And that's the end of that quote. Now, no sooner had I published that article than that statement ceased to be true, right? I, and that's, that's one of, that's, yeah, the slowness of, of academic publishing, right? I think one of the most striking things of the last year and a half to me has been the reintroduction of the word lie and lying into the, lex, into the journalistic lexicon here in the United States. And you see it in the likes of the New York Times and the Washington Post. And indeed, if I could do quantification, I'm positive that you could measure something by the, the, the reappearance of that one word, the lie. Even more important than truth, I think, um, in, in US journalism. And, and indeed, honestly, I mean, the, the, the context in which the New York Times and the Washington Post reintroduced the word lie, it was absolutely called for, in my, my opinion. It took them long enough, it, it seems. They took, it took a very long time to yeah. get there. They had all these circumlocutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. They, they went around it and around it and around it, and finally they landed there, and it's at that moment that not only think, have things shifted, but maybe maybe we don't want... Who knows? We'll, we'll go there. We'll go there again. Okay, so the, the phrase post-truth is, is much in circulation these days. I don't think that's necessarily a great description of the world that we're in. If anything, the truth has returned with a vengeance. And I'm not trying to split hairs here or suggest we get rid of that, that moniker post-truth that it works. It's nice, I like it. Um, instead, I'm just gonna say that we maybe want to think tactically in, in much the way that Naomi was suggesting. And I think that's what a lot of us are doing today. I think that's what news organizations are doing. And I also think that's what, what comedians, strangely, have been doing for a while and very effectively. One thing else I learned in Venezuela is that to quote Bertolt Brecht, uh, the truth is belligerent. It strikes out not only against falsehood, but against people who spread falsehood, the belligerence of truth. Um, the truth is both an object and subject of political struggle, and there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is that sometimes truth is too quick. Um, one can tell the truth without any supporting evidence. Truth is not entirely dependent on facts, but I think it's more powerful when it's supported by them. Um, not always, but I think it's often more powerful. And I think that's what they knew in El Salvador. I think that's why an entire apparatus was constructed to selectively cultivate certain facts and to put others out of reach of journalists. I think today the political terrain has shifted, as I've said like three times. I think that many of our truths can be supported by readily ascertained facts. 
The truth of mass incarceration, you don't have to look very, I don't have to look very far for that. The truth of brutality against brown and black bodies, the truth of inequality against discriminatory gendered labor practices of environmental degradation, the list goes on. We have a lot of facts at our disposal. Um, and to, to, to end this up and to, to, to leave a messy ending here, um, to go back to the story of John Doe and war stories, I think what I wish that I had said to him and that I didn't say at that moment um, was the reason that this, this book is so powerful and you find it so convincing um, is that the truth is supported by tedious, painstaking, empirical evidence. It's an entire book filled with facts. Um, and these are grounded facts. And it's what I think made the book powerful and continues to make it so powerful. And so in some ways, maybe, maybe the constructivist lesson is less important than the methodological lesson in penalty. And that was what, what I think maybe going forward, I might take some solace in, um, mm -hmm. which are basically in a, maybe a longer way to come back to the, the three points that Naomi was making from the start. Thank you. Yes. Natalia Rudakova continued the discussion by offering insights from the post-truth media landscape in Russia. I come to this panel having worked on the erosion of truth-seeking and truth-telling in Russia over the past 20 years, and I also have studied journalists there and the story of the spectacular unraveling of journalism as a profession in Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. So contrary to general expectations, things have gotten a lot worse in Russia in journalism after the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, it wasn't um, so much free range of uh, freedom and press freedom and um, freedom-seeking and freedom-loving journalists being able to speak truth to power as a full-on devaluation of journalism as a craft, as a profession, as a a group of people that have any right whatsoever to speak in public. So that's what I've been doing, uh, and that's what my work is about. So in many ways, I have been studying the post-truth phenomenon for a very long time, only I haven't been able to name it. However, since 2016, it's been very easy to explain to people what it is that I've been studying for so long. So post-truth might be Russia's greatest import to the Western world yet, in my opinion. So um, that's the position from which I am speaking here. And when I would tell my fellow anthropologists that I'm writing a book about what happened to the notion of truth in Russia, and my fellow friends, or many of them would say, aren't you putting truth in quotes at least? And I would say, no, I'm not putting truth in quotes. In fact, I'm trying to use as few quotes around words as possible, <laughs> which is a problem in our discipline for a very, very long time. So our fear, I think, of writing without putting words and quotes, you know, objectivity in quotes, authenticity in quotes, sincerity in quotes, anything really in quotes, I think is telling. Our fear of not using quotes is telling. And I think it's based on a long tradition in Western epistemology that sees knowledge formation as based on skepticism, doubt, and rigorous questioning of uh, whatever it is we're studying. It's also at the, at the core of our notion of critique and criticism. But I think there is a lesser known tradition in epistemology 
that acknowledges a very close relationship between epistemology and ethics, and that's where I ended up gravitating in trying to understand what has been going on around the erosion of truth and truth uh, seeking and, and the value of truth seeking and value. Mm. So this is a le lesser known tradition that looks at knowledge production as dependent as much on trust as on skepticism and doubt. And in this tradition, knowledge and truth are understood to be social institutions and collective goods. And so cognitive and moral orders end up being seen as very closely intertwined. So uh, truth in this tradition, lesser known tradition of epistemological thinking, is thus a deeply social product and not only or not always simply an effect of power, which is what we're mm. used to thinking about in anthropology. Ethics is what stands between truth and power, and ethics is a deeply social matter. Ethics cannot be reduced to power. On the contrary, ethics is the place from which power can sometimes be stood up to and challenged. And this approach to truth as a social product underscores the role of trust, like I said already, in the production of truth. Our skepticism, doubt, criticism can only live on the margins of what we trust. Quoting from Stephen Shapin here, the historian of science that many of you know, our ability to doubt someone's words or actions depends on our ability to trust almost everything else in the scene in which we do skepticism. Mm. When trust is fully severed, as was the case, has been the case in Russia around journalism, trust between media producers and media consumers, trust between politicians and publics, trust among journalists of each other. When trust is fully severed like that, a community of discourse and knowledge simply falls apart. It is not only that people cannot agree with one another anymore, rather, it is the possibility of disagreement itself that is withdrawn. And I think that is what defines par excellence the situation we call post-truth today. When the possibility of disagreeing among people is withdrawn. So, you know, in good Russian fashion, I could ask the two big Russian questions that everybody in Russia always asks. One is who is to blame, and the other is what is to be done. <laughs> the who is to blame, I'll leave aside for now. But the what is to be done, I can suggest a few things here. I think one thing we can do as knowledge producers is remembering that when we make knowledge claims, we're always making moral claims. Uh, that there is no value-free science, social or otherwise, and that anyone producing knowledge needs to attend especially carefully to how they're coming across as moral persons. As persons, what kind of morality? What do we stand by when we produce knowledge? Are we honest? Are we sincere? Do we mean what we say? Are we ready to stand by what we say? What do we really care about? This is the kind of repertoire of concerns that would invite trust, or that would have a chance of inviting trust in those who listen to us, in people who formerly known as the audience, as one paper calls them. <laughs> so back to maybe putting the quotation marks around words that we are so used to using. I decided to go back to writing culture for a second, and the first chapter uh, in uh, Clifford and Marks, Marcus's book uh, is called Partial Truths. This is, as you remember, a watershed moment in anthropology in the 80s, 
when uh, the claim that anthropology can produce any kind of absolute truth about other cultures uh, was shattered. And actually, Clifford, in the partial truths chapter in the intro, speaks very much along the lines that I think we are finally returning to. We may have just forgotten. We, we remember the part where he says, forget about the, the truth with a big T, but <coughs> we uh, should remember that uh, he's actually advocating there the notion of partial truths, and he keeps emphasizing that these mm. truths are com committed. They are self-conscious, serious partiality uh, bearing kinds of truths. There's a rigor in partiality that he asks for. Uh, there is seriousness and sincerity in the partiality that he asks for. And maybe picking back on what Robert was saying just a second ago, maybe it's the thoroughness uh, with which we pursue evidence. Uh, these are all ethical dimensions. Rigor, thoroughness, sincerity, seriousness, commitment to what we stand for, showing our colors, <clears throat> standing by our words. These are the kinds of things I think that would at least have a chance of uh, inviting trust mm. in audiences or larger groups of people who listen to public speakers. So um, I think it's, it's an extremely difficult task to try to come across as meaning what you say, as standing by what you say, as believing in something, but there's no other way but to try. <laughs> so that would be my modest contribution. Following Natalia, Amal Bashara called our attention to what she calls environments of expression, the political economies of media production, and much more. I, I'm kind of thinking and speaking today as a researcher, teacher, activist, although I'll say that I haven't been teaching honestly since the elections because I had a baby and then I had leave, so I know, I know, I'm so waiting for the ton of bricks. <laughs> I'm waiting for the ton of bricks next year and this is helping me think about my next, um, you know, teaching round on anthropology and media. But, um, you know, as in my research, I'm looking at the relationship between Palestinian citizens of Israel and Palestinians in the West Bank and what it makes it, what makes it difficult for them to speak to each other and as a collective. And I've been trying to think through this idea, what I'm calling for now anyway, um, environments of expression. And it's useful for me because it helps me examine legal, cultural, infrastructural, military, geographic, physical limitations on expression in each location in between <clears throat> these locations. And to have a sense of how no environment for expression is hermetically sealed. And they affect each other, just like environments in that natural cultural world. And so that's one of, I mean, I think we absolutely need to do and teach ethnographies of objectivity and truth. Um, but I'm kind of, I guess, uh, you know, at, trying to look at a slightly different angle here about how to approach these issues in the classroom and beyond. And I mean, I, I think that we do need to kind of hold fast to facts. And for me, it's helpful to come back to Haraway's concept of situated knowledge, both because it helps us to think rigorously about methods and making transparent positions from which knowledge is produced, which for me feels like a really intuitive thing because I think it's what we learned, you know, in anthropology of media through both looking at process and production of media, but also through looking at ethnographic film and pr process of production producing and talking about producing um, ethnographic film. So for me, that just comes really easily. Um, and the other reason why this approach of situated knowledge is really important is because obviously we need a lot of feminism in this moment, um, you know, to encounter what, what we're seeing every day. 
So understanding the positions and processes from which knowledge is produced, of course, involves a political economic approach to media companies and media producers. And I think you know that's something that I have um, you know maybe not done enough in the past. But I actually think for some in some ways that to me it starts to answer some of the New York Times question, which is we were talking earlier about how all of a sudden the New York Times. I mean, you know, we can be critical of the New York Times, and I am, and so on and so forth, but they do certain things really well, and it's partly because they're a big, strong, relatively wealthy institution, and so they've got the money to do certain kinds of very good reporting, and we need that, you know what I mean? I, we also need the nation and a million other things, and nation, you know, and, and, and smaller things, but, you know, but the political economic thing uh, approach is something that I, I know I need to do more. We also need to do, uh, I need to understand more also about al how algorithms work in shaping our knowledge worlds. Um, Another thing I want to add, though, to the situated knowledge piece is that we need to think uh, of expression um, not as something as we do alone as individuals or even something that we do in unison as collectives, but instead, and this comes sort of really from the research I'm thinking, my own research, about how we work together to say things even when we're not saying precisely the same thing. Um, you know, I mean, you can think about protests where it sometimes seems that protest chanters are saying the same thing together, but we all know mm -hmm. that that's not quite true, right? Mm -hmm. And also, you know, everyone's got their own poster anyway. So, you know, thinking about speaking together but not in unison and how, um, um, how we can then create spaces in which those who have less privilege have the ability to make themselves heard, again, even if we're not saying the same thing. Concretely, this means, for example, that we've got to fight for net neutrality, even if we lose this uh, battle, right? Um, I also think of this through the lens of a dialogical film that I co-produced co called Take My Pictures For Me, which is about this environment for expression that I've been talking about. And the gist of the video, spoiler alert, is that I cannot take pictures for somebody else, right? I can't <laughs> take pictures for somebody else, but we can through a process of sort of taking pictures, talking about them, you know, and showing the failures in one person's ability to speak for someone else, you know, we can elucidate some of the barriers to expression and, and have a conversation that hopefully, um, you know, when other people are looking at it on film can, can say something about the structural limitations on expression that, you know, each of us face. But actually that my partner faces a lot more because he's a West Bank Palestinian, faces a lot more than I do because I'm in that video. Um, so we, we enable each other's expression. We obviously agree on certain things, but we don't agree on everything, and that is how it should work, right? I, I think also in a, of another kind of collaboration in which there's an enabling of one person speaking with another. Um, uh, this really stuck with me, uh, especially because it was just uh, just over about, it was probably about 13 months ago now, 13 or 14 months ago. A Florida mother took her 12-year-old son, J.J. Holmes, to a Trump rally. Um, it's funny that I'm getting emotional, but... Anyway, um, so JJ has cerebral palsy and uses a wheelchair as well as a computer program to help him speak. So getting up to the getting to the rally didn't just mean getting up really really early and driving through you know you know driving to get to the rally. It meant JJ programming his computer vocalization de device with um, chants like "Dump Trump" and "Trump mocks the disabled." And at the rally, because his computer isn't that his speaker isn't that loud, people chanted with his mother and his sisters chanted with him. Um, but at the rally, unfortunately, uh, people were really mean, in particular to JJ's mother, and they called her names. But also at the rally, um, he, uh, an NPR reporter, I think, found them and made sure that the next day he was actually able to meet President Obama. So if you think about sort of the, the constellation of technologies, familiar relationships, other kinds of civic relationships that allowed for this boy to speak, you know, in two different days, in two different ways, um, we need to think again about, you know, expression as being collective. Right. 
Um, and, uh, you know, prison education seems like another, my university has a new prison education project, you know, how can that be a venue for these kinds of creatives speaking together? So our era demands, I think, a, a situated knowledge that accounts for where effects come from and also make sure that we highlight the systematic failures in those systems of, of knowledge production. So, you know, I imagine that through co collaborations like this and across tremendous gaps in power and privilege, across differences in geography, embodiment, gender, nationality, class, education, we can, if we're careful, create ways to both allow those with more extreme limitations on expression to participate in public spheres, while also highlighting those structural factors that inhibit expression and collaboration. As a major part of thinking about both unevenly distributed access to expression and also teaching about how facts are made, I think we need to think about, um, and when possible, address income inequality and its effects on education. Um, we need more, ed more education about media literacy for people of all ages, starting in grade school and continuing through college. I know that there are syllabi out there. My, I was thinking of a teaching exercise where maybe my students could look at those exercises and add to them, or perhaps, for example, make them more anti-racist or more feminist or more globally informed, because I, I think maybe our anthro of media classes do those things especially well. Um, so um, yeah, that's what that's what I was thinking. Maybe that um, maybe next fall when I teach my seminar in media, one element could be to examine something like the common sense media media literacy le lesson plans and ask students to add to it and then build from there. So thanks. Presenter Alex Yuhaz was not able to attend the panel in person, but offered a resolution to be shared in her absence, titled, Resolution Toward Radical Digital Media Literacy in a Post-Truth Era. Robert Samet read an excerpt from the end of the resolution aloud. Let me suggest five alternatives towards a radical digital media literacy in our post-truth, anti-Trump era. One, fake news are us. We are implicated by, produce, and circulate this crisis whenever we study, teach, or try to fix it. Two, virality is virility. A potent mix of, in, of internet-fueled falsity, masculine grandiosity, and resulting real-world bellicosity undergirds fake news and our efforts to understand it. Three, art answers to fake questions. Departures from evidence-based, indexically linked practices into realms of truth-telling verifiable by different logics might get us out of the he said, she said rabbit hole we currently find ourselves in. Four, our internet truths trump media lies. We must name, share, and honor our own lived experiences within social media as another form of honesty in desperate times. Let's do this first offline together where we work, where we live, work, struggle, or learn. And five, heed the poet's call. Poetry, a time-honored word-based form of truth-telling outside the logic logics of indexical mediation might be one well-honed literary literacy practice well suited to this crisis. Faye Ginsberg, the final presenter, began by opening the room up to a lively discussion on where students get their news from. It's all social media. Facebook? Yes. Snapchat. Stephen Colbert. I would like to throw a challenge out. I think we should do a big crowdsource project about what you know, millennial, how millennials are learning about the world through the news. I mean, obviously we're trying to teach about the world through other means, because I think it would be really fascinating and um, important, and I have no idea how to do an intervention or even, I'm also amazed that when they tell me that, that also they're pretty well informed about a lot of stuff that's not, um, you know, 
not like, you know, whatever, the biggest headline, at, you know, mm -hmm. like the things that are more subtle than that. So anyway, I just curious, anyone else have a comment on that? Mm -hmm. that so yeah, I recommend it. It's <laughs> just like take a deep breath before you do it. Okay, four things. So um, I'll jump back just to, I, I teach this kind of core course in ethnographic film and its permutations right over time. And I mean, the first thing I always say is, you know, there every single week, we're gonna be looking at a very different idea about what truth is, you know, and mm -hmm. those, those are very different. When Robert Clarity says, sometimes you have to lie to tell the truth, you know, mm -hmm. he's talking about the geist of, you know, Inuit that he encountered at that time when, um, you know, Dennis O'Rourke calls Cannibal Tours a documentary fiction. He's uh, pointing out that he is entitled to make this in, in an essayistic form, right? And to have his his opinions woven through it, which is, of course seems shocking at the time. It's completely not shocking, but you know, there we are. You know, so every every time you're, you know, and then we look at um, Bontoc Eulogy. People know this film by Marlon Fuentes. It's a brilliant. Uh, a part of a subgenre that emerged in the 90s called uh, fake documentary or faux documentary or mockumentary. Um, Alex Yuhash, who's not here, actually wrote a fabulous, uh, uh, edited a fabulous collection with Elisa Liebau, another wonderful scholar, called F is for Phony. <laughs> Such a great title, um, which was looking at that genre people are interested, um, put up in Minnesota. But um, anyway, Marlon Fuentes is a Filipino artist uh, and activist who came to the U.S. as a college student and it actually creates this whole first person is completely mimics mm -hmm. the genre form of first person documentary which Americans are total suckers for like that is the thing we all eat up and um, situates himself as you know I'm, I'm making this for my children and he has these pictures of these kids mm -hmm. who resemble him and uh, he actually starts by actually listening to recordings of Philip people who brought from the tribal people, so to speak, uh, brought from the Philippines to the 1904 World's Fair mm -hmm. uh, sound recording. He's listening to the Monument Trolla. It's really quite interesting. Um, and then, anyway, so it sets up this whole thing, and it's all made with um, fake footage, and it's about like how one of the Igorot guys who came to the mm -hmm. World's Fair was really his uncle or his grandfather, and, you know, and he tells this whole sort of genealogy, and by the it's beautifully done. He's a brilliant filmmaker. He's very Brechtian. You see all the, if you know anything about film history, he's borrowed all kinds of uh, fictional scenes from early film history. So, I mean, you can pull it apart and see the scenes. Um, and then at the end, it becomes evident that it's um, fabricated. fabricated. At the same time, it's also a kind of a truth mm -hmm. about his own Filipino identity and his genealogy. And the, because he knows like the first person account, has a kind of situated truth, whatever. And it's so interesting because the first time we showcased, we premiered it at the Margaret Mead Film Festival in New York City in whatever year it came out, 96. People were ready to kill him yeah. when he revealed that. I mean, and he doesn't, he strategically doesn't reveal it at the beginning. And it was so interesting because, of course, there was a considerable amount of truth in that. Like, one is just like to understand something about the subject, to embrace the subjectivity of people who were basically incarcerated at World's Fairs who were taken from their homes and, um, you know, to try and address the terrible difficulties of living on this sort of half, like that sort of in between, always in between cultural spaces and so forth. But it was so, but I think the most interesting part of that is how upset people yeah. get. My students this. get yeah. very angry when I show that film. 
Yeah. And then do you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful, it's a great film. Sally, he then left filmmaking altogether after actually a really wonderful career, and he is a martial artist, and he has a studio in LA. <laughs> so maybe he was tired of people beating him up, and I'm like, okay, it's like a special, if anyone's like an expert in this, it's like a special form of martial arts practice in the Philippines, anyway. So, um, so I just I think these are all very robust ways to teach. I'll, I'll just mention one other thing. I like in my own work with indigenous media, uh, which began in the late '80s. Um, so, anybody here know about like Wall Free Media work and or Michael's? Yeah. Um, what's so interesting, you know, so one of the things we learned with uh, you know the emergence of indigenous media and people who went, actually were like watching what was happening. Uh, Eric Michael's was among the people who started that. I many of us have followed. Um, for uh, remote living, still traditional Walpuri folks, when they started using video cameras, what guaranteed the truth of, uh, of the thing that they were watching, which was impenetrable to someone like me as an outsider until it was explained to me, because the camera work, this, everything about it didn't follow any rules that I knew about, about filmmaking, which was great. That's why it got so interesting is who was making it. Because if someone was trying to tell a story or show a ritual of a group where they didn't have, um, uh, were not in a sense in a custodial relationship to that knowledge or that practice, um, it was considered false. So it's a really, you know, like I just, it's just a very robust reminder of the different regimes of what is true and false and how we think about them and why, you know, certain, and the other thing we do, and I always do in my classes, like to pull, so by the end of the class, one of the great things about showing a faux documentary is like the students understand that they have become very habituated to certain mm -hmm. styles of a genre mm -hmm. that um, are, they have learned to understand this truth. That's mm -hmm. why they get angry because like the whole kind yeah. of undergirding and infrastructure of um, a, reading in a genre. It's just like if you learn that everybody at the New York Times has been lying forever and ever, and you're like, oh, yeah, you can't. I mean, you just, you know, you have certain things that you bring to this. And of course, that's what's going on right now with your student, you know, the, with all of us, with the students who, you know, people who mm -hmm. believe Fox News is true or whatever. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know how we get around that. Um, okay, just a couple more things here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think this is very difficult. We are living in very siloed worlds, and they're very ideologically constructed. I mean, mine is as much as anybody else's. Except mine's right. Sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, so I just wanted to say, I'm reading a book right now. You mentioned the algorithms and like understanding like how all the things that appear to be true. I'm reading a book. I don't know if anyone's read it called Weapons of Math Destruction. I saw that. It's really That's great. great. Yeah. yeah. It's um, this wonderful woman who just pulls apart all the kind of, um, you know, kind of supposed engineering truths. Revealing by lack of knowledge, like the right language, but anyway, but you know what what goes into constructing an algorithm as supposedly delivering the truth of big data, and it's just very well done, and I, I just recommend it to you because I think we all, you know, if we're looking, if we're talking to all those of our students who are getting their news in all the ways that Mark just described, and uh, at, you know, when we're worried about um, the FCC ruling on net neutrality, like we need to, they they need to be educated about algorithms and really important ways. And we need to know that those need to be at our fingertips and we need to really understand that we should not be afraid of math. Um, okay, so then the last, I just want to mention that uh, sort of going through like my own big research projects, um, questions about how we tell truth and like what worlds we live in. Um, I mean, I started out 
writing about abortion activists on both sides of the debate. And I spent a lot of time with right-to-lifers and very conservative women who were supporting Ronald Reagan at the time. And um, writing about that in a, in a, I hate to use the word truth, but writing about it in what I felt was an accurate way to, I know I got slammed. I would go to conferences and present my data and people would like, think I was lying because I was doing what I should do as an anthropologist, which is to make people logic reasonable, right? Uh, and understand what's driving it. And they were very perfectly reasonable, you know. So, um, you know, I think it's just to remind, to remind us that we speak to audiences who are ready to receive certain kinds of knowledge and not other kinds of knowledge, and that those are challenges. Um, and those are really good challenges to think about. And I think that's what we have to do, especially with people on the other side of our media. It's just that the, the world has become deeply uncivil, violent, and siloed in a way that it wasn't back then. Um, then um, I've done a very long-term work on indigenous media uh, worldwide, probably not worldwide, but in many different parts of the world. And also uh, have been working now for many years as an activist and a scholar of uh, around issues of disability. Um, and you know, one of the important um, slogans of the disability rights movement, nothing about us without us, are people familiar with that? It's just so, you know, and it's just like, where does the truth come? You know, I feel like for me, that's the responsibility of my truth, which is, you know, can I always, am I always in a relationship where people will um, feel like they were included in my knowledge, in the way mm -hmm. I re represented them? And now my favorite activist just, I just saw him and he said, oh, just forget nothing about us without us. It's just like nothing without us. Like, just why are we not there? So I just wanted to end because this is something I'm thinking about a lot. So that time started about a year ago, um, a series of op-ed uh, on the subject of disability. People may have been sure who knows about that. Um, that was, they were lobbied hard by a few key activists who said, we are completely invisible. We're invisible in the world. We're invisible in these pages. And it's now it's like it's going into its second year. It's been incredibly robust. It's been revelatory. I get, because I work on this, I get a zillion emails every time one of them comes out where people are like, why did I put my mascara on before I read the paper? I'm crying. <laughs> um, or, or whatever thing that moves people. And, you know, and I think that's like the kind of truth we traffic in, in addition to, you know, which is the truth of the situated knowledge of the sort that's not, that's revelatory. You know, I think of it more as like revelatory. What can we reveal to people that has been hiding in plain sight from them? And sometimes that's pulling the curtain back on media practices and what goes on and like why Palestinian stringers are never acknowledged or, um, you know, what goes on on the Hollywood, on the Bollywood sets, um, you know, it, um, but also like why is there this like unbelievable world of counter-public indigenous media going on that nobody sees like and why is that not being archived properly so that people students can see it like where you know so those so those are the things that i feel like we have the responsibility to do that's very a special task for us and whether that comes out in ways that we um you know but it, it's being able to teach things like ethnographic film and it's all the ways it's been exploded blown up and reimagined and repurposed is Really, you know, because you know the students want you. They would come and they're like, "Okay, teach us what this thing is." And it's like this thing is always self-destructing and reinventing itself. And that's the best thing that they can learn in a way. So, and I think, I mean, maybe the thing to take advantage of with this generation, where they're seeing so much media transformation in front of their own eyes, is that maybe they're already kind of there. And I don't know what we do with that, but um, <laughs> anyway. So I'd love to throw it open for more uh, conversation. So those are my thoughts. Thank you.
You've been listening to Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. We'd like to thank all of the presenters for allowing us to record this panel. You can find a link to Alex Yuhaz's full presentation in the show notes at colanth.org. That's C-U-L-A-N-T-H dot org. You can subscribe to Anthropod via iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Catherine Sacco. Thanks for listening. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Oh, that's fun. So nice.